Hey there, it's Antonio, and we're back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen. And on today's podcast, I had a phone chat with my old organ teacher, Alan Thomas. I really hope that the audio is going to be decent. Working on the telephone is always tricky with a laptop. That's right, I used to play the church organ. This was a thing that was a big part of my life for years. And Alan has been playing the organ, I don't want to count how many years, but talks about growing up during the Second World War and also being one of the first people in the UK to play music live on television. So suffice to say, bringing him into the podcasting sphere was very exciting for me. I was happy to sit down and have this chat with him. I hope you enjoy it as well. And if not, well, who cares if you listen? So, so I mean, I guess for, for people that don't know you, obviously, I... I I'm fortunate enough that I know you quite well, but uh, maybe maybe you could sort of give the uh, the biographical details about how you maybe first got into music, for example. Yes, well, I was I was born into um, a nice family. My mother played the piano, and she played at Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started piano lessons when I was six. There was a nice young lady in the village. And uh, I went to her house every Friday evening, walked there, it was quite simple. And <clears throat> because the, the wartime uh, was on at, the t- at that time, I, I was six in about 1942, so I <clears throat> had to make sure we got home before blackouts and air raids and things. <laughs> Must have been a really scary time to grow up in. Yes, it was, because... Um, <clears throat> The town next to us was heavily bombed, and I watched it from my bedroom window. Uh, we were lucky, you know, our house survived, and that was fine. But I also was a member of the church choir, and that also led me to have organ lessons when I was about 14, 15. Now, if I remember right, your mother is, was an organist as well, yes? No, no, she was a, a pianist, really, and she played for Sunday school, and... Uh, until the day I told her that I thought I was better than she was. <laughs> oh my goodness, how did that go over? Yeah, well, she said, well, okay, go ahead and do it, so I did. <laughs> you, you lived true to your word at that point. Yes, so I ended up playing the piano for the Sunday school services on Sunday afternoon. And eventually I, I became sort of assistant organist of the church when I was about 15, 16. So, so were you? Did you know that you were, you're from your earliest age that you were really interested in in hymn music, particularly, or, or was that just happened to be what what you learned when you were doing lessons and the like? Yes, well, it was a, <clears throat> I was brought up in a very musical community, and, uh, and my schools, uh, my primary school and secondary school, were very musical indeed. <clears throat> so I, I became very much a part of it. People often say that the the Welsh people are are extremely musical. I mean, even when they had the Olympics in London, I think they had a full throated Welsh choir singing as part of the uh, the opening celebrations. I mean, yeah. do you, do you have any idea what, any any theories as to why that is? Well, I think it may have been the fact that um, all, all the towns had uh, not only the church but also had lots of chapels, Welsh chapels, nonconformist ones. And every chapel had a choir, and um, the, the male voice choir was really uh, something special. And my town certainly had one, and it had a municipal orchestra, and I played double bass in that. 
community was really saturated, you know, and we had a very good local opera society as well. That so you, you couldn't, you couldn't, you simply couldn't avoid the music scene at all. That, that's a really interesting. I mean, I know I knew you played the double bass, or at least I I knew that at one point, and I know that you yeah. you sing piano, organ, harpsichord, all the various sorts of keyboards. I, yeah. I clarinet. Um, am I missing any? Yeah. Yeah, I also played um, my second university. I was I had to attend um, an education class, and we were all expected to play a brass instrument. So I played the cornet. Oh. Now that's that's a trumpet without the valves, right? Um, no, the cornet has valves. It's just a shorter sort of trumpet, or it's I I think yeah. it's somehow related. Yes, it is. It looks like a squash trumpet. I've also taught myself to play the bassoon, and I played that in the local orchestra as well. So, uh, so you've got the double reeds, the woodwind, the brass, and the yes. the percussion. So, and the strings. So you've got every part of the orchestra covered, except yes. except percussion, I suppose. Although piano is sort of a percussion instrument, so maybe it gets yes. grandfathered in there. Did yeah, he? no, I, I didn't mention to the percussion department. <laughs> My, my brother, my my brother, who was two years younger than I am, he also played the piano, and had a very good singing voice. And in the school orchestra, he played violin. So uh, that was really nice for all of us, you know. Well, that's great. Uh, did you know from an early age that uh, you wanted to pursue music seriously or as a career? Um, yes, well, when I went to university, I was hoping to do a combination of music and foreign languages, uh, French and Spanish. Because in the, the Welsh high school system, the, the grammar school, uh, you had to do three subjects in the last two years of your school. And I picked music, French and Spanish. And when I went to university, I said, uh, to, to take a music degree, they said, well, you've got a, a British government state scholarship. I won having sat an exam. And they only gave 2,000 of these scholarships in the British Isles every year. But they were very generous with the money. And um, but my, my prof at the university said, well, he said, if you've got a state, state scholarship, you cannot mix things. You couldn't decide either to do music or languages. So I said, well, I'll do music. So my career changed in a flash on a Tuesday morning. You know. But but notwithstanding that, I mean, you're you're quite the polyglot as well. If I if if memory serves correctly, yes. Yes, yes. I haven't been in my life most in church most of my life. I taught myself uh, Greek and Hebrew to read the Bible in the original languages. And and also and also French and Spanish and I think I've heard yes. you rattle off a bit of uh, even even learned a Hungarian word or two if I remember correctly. Yes, I, I went. I visited the Moscow Conservatory too, so I taught myself a bit of Russian before I went. So yes, so, uh, well, I, I would have been a linguist, but I wasn't allowed to be. My British scholarship wouldn't allow it. it it's sort of funny how some sort of a bureaucratic sort of box ticking uh you know really radically changes your your life trajectory that way do you ever think sort of there but for the grace of god you know i could have gone this direction instead of that way well it's like changing countries you see i mean i came to canada which i dreamed of doing when i was younger simply because 
because I, I came on a visit to Waterford with a, a friend of mine who taught at uh, Ashbury College for uh, about 18 months on some kind of special exchange. And I came to Canada and they offered me a job and I said no. But then they, they offered me the job two years later and I said yes. So what changed in those two years? Well, I think I rather fancied the idea of a new country and new experience. And, and I was in my 30s then, you know, so... Well, it's funny because, I mean, I'm in my 30s right now. I'm going to be 35 at the end of August. I can't imagine. I mean, obviously, my life situation's a little bit different with the kids, but still, I, I can't imagine moving to a different part of town, much less moving across the Atlantic. I mean, there surely must have been some sort of a fear in doing that. Yes, and my friends thought I was completely mad, you know, nuts, giving up a very good job in England in a boarding school when I was head of the music department. Yeah, they thought I was completely crackers, but um, it was a huge change in life for me, you know, a big, major experience. But in retrospect, are you glad that you ended up doing it? Yeah, yes, I am, yes. I was also offered a job in Australia, but I, I declined that one because I thought, well, that's really far too far away, you know. It's funny, though, because I hear a lot of British expats that probably would have picked Australia over uh, over Canada. I know a few that came here, for example, to teach squash. And then as soon as they were offered a job with half the pay in Bermuda, I mean, they were gone before you could snap your fingers because one Canadian winter was one too many. Yes. <laughs> yes, the Canadian winter was quite a shock when I came, I must admit. Well, I brought all my furniture with me, but nobody told me about how dry the climate is in Ottawa. So a lot of my furniture, which is antique, simply split from top to bottom. But um, I now have humidifiers going all the time. Well, especially with, with you know the musical instruments that you have. I mean, even keeping a piano in tune is no small feat with the winters and the summers that we have over here. No, that's right. <clears throat> but the worst danger is having the soundboard split because of the dryness. I hadn't, even, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's probably the extreme example yeah. of that. I, I would advise anybody emigrating not to bring their pianos with them. It would be a disaster. <laughs> Well, you need, to, you need to have something that's built specifically for the climate, unless you're Angela Hewitt, you know, marching around the globe with your fazioli sort of thing. Well, I was lucky because I went into Ashbury College and I had an immediate family of friends. My colleagues were really very helpful and very pleasant indeed. So I remember a story that you told me years ago about uh, your, your professor at the University of Manchester back in the mm -hmm. 1950s, 1960s. Yes. Hedwig Stein. Now you said I, I don't know if I'm. I don't want to put you on the spot. So uh, apologies yeah, if it's a quiz. But I remember you saying you could sort of trace your piano lineage all the way back to Beethoven. Yes, uh, yes, I can. And uh, starting with Hedwig Stein, and she was taught um, by Arturo. Uh, I can't just remember the name. And then we, he goes back to Lester Tisky and before that, Czerny, and then Beethoven. So there were five piano teachers between me and Beethoven. I mean, that's kind of a fun historical thing to think about, but I don't know. Do, do you yeah. find that maybe Beethoven is easier to play than, say, Chopin, maybe because of the pedagogy? Oh, yes. Well, I think it's, it's, it's all to do with your finger structure. I mean, uh, I've got a, a plaster cast 
Chopin's handling. It's not remotely like mine. I find Chopin very difficult. He's got very slender fingers, or maybe... Uh... Yes, he did, and... Um, because he was famous for playing extremely quietly and very delicately. That's why he, <clears throat> people found him his concerts were really rather strange because they could hardly hear what he was doing. So someone who does, I mean, obviously you've had a long career in, in music and then also as a mm. teacher. I imagine you must have had countless musical uh, students over the years. Yes, indeed. I, I've, I kept in touch with some of them, too. Um, one of them is in our professor at... Uh, one of the universities in Texas, and he keeps in touch. Another one, another one in South Africa. So it's really nice that. Yeah, I, I imagine you've had quite an impact on a lot of people's lives, sort of musically, and then yes. more more broadly. I mean, do you find that from? I imagine you've had a wide range of some musicians that end up being professionals, some that perhaps yeah. are just enthusiastic amateurs. Do you find that, in your opinion, do people, some people just have more natural music aptitude than others, or is it just a question yeah. of hard work? Well, it's a combination of both, actually, for some people, you know. I remember one student who played in the school pop group, and uh, I said, you know, I think you're far too talented to play in this second-rate outfit. I gave him piano lessons, and uh, he was very, very uh, clever to pick things up quickly. And he became a professional musician and still is in England. Astonishing, isn't it? What kind of music does he do? I'm... Uh, again, it's mostly, I think, church music, and he writes church anthems and things. I haven't heard from him for a year or two, but we've kept in touch. You've never been one, in, from my perception, to have any sort of performance anxiety. I mean, I remember a recording engineer calling you One Take Thomas at one That's point. That's right. That was because I started my life at uh, Manchester University. Uh, the day the telephone rang, and it, it was um, the local television company. And, and they, they, have, they were putting on a show that evening at 5 o'clock. And the soprano would turn up without an accompanist, thinking they'd provide one, but of course they didn't. So I was next to the phone. So I went down in a taxi to the, to the television studio. It was Granada Television, I think. <clears throat> and fortunately, being a good sight reader, I could play her music quite easily. And they, not only that, but they booked me for several more shows later on with other people, which was rather nice. And extremely well paid <laughs> that's fantastic i mean just to think that you know you can sort of do that on the fly and especially yes. sort of the cutting edge of technology do you remember what year it was yes that would have been 1956 okay so television's still sort of in its infancy at that point i mean it must yes, have been quite the novelty that's right and there was no recording you had to get the notes right absolutely first time I wonder if there is. I wonder if there is an archive bill of it somewhere. It'd be curious to see if there's sort of an Alan Thomas original yeah. from you know fifty five odd years ago. Yes. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> that certainly stood me in good stead for the rest of my career because I learned to do things without mistakes straight off. You know. So it was just the pressure of having to perform live in sort of that setting that kind of yes. taught you to steal your nerves. Were you ner were you a nervous performer before then? No, no, I've never been a very nervous performer, to be honest. I've been lucky in that respect. I don't get uh, the jitters, you know, I just get on with it. 
I think that's a really rare talent, even among musicians that I know, where a lot of people, I think, sort of feed off that adrenaline to be able to perform at their best. No, I don't have that. I just, uh, I just regard it as another thing to do, you know. <laughs> well, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, if you're able to do that, it's, it's a fantastic yeah. skill. You know, in in addition to your your time teaching, you are also active as a as an organist and a choir director here in Ottawa. Tell us a little bit about uh, your your time over at Westminster. I started at Westminster. I had, first of all, I'd lived in Ashbury College for two years in charge of all the boarding students, and I was head of music as well. So then I moved out, and I thought it'd be nice to have a church job again. And uh, I heard that Westminster. Presbyterian Church, the organist was uh, retiring. So, so I thought that would be ideal, and uh, I applied, <clears throat> and I was interviewed by a committee, of course, and uh, they they accepted me, and uh, I was very, very pleased. You know, I had a church choir, an organ, Thursday night rehearsals, Sunday morning performances, and I, I, I did that for almost 40 years. That's incredible. Now, was that always a, uh, I, I remember when we did lessons for years, that was a, a two-manual Rogers organ, a digital uh, electronic yeah. organ. Was it always a digital organ at Westminster? Uh, yes, they, they never had a pipe organ, but um, the Rogers one replaced the older one, which was a con, C-O-N-N. And we, we gave that to a church uh, somewhere south of Ottawa, and they were very glad to have it, you know. Do you do you have any sort of hesitation as an organist? I know some people are very much purists where, you know, it's a pipe organ or nothing else will do. Not really. I'm, I'm, if it's a decent electronic organ, why not? You know? Organs are extremely expensive to maintain. It's true. They are, they are a lot of upkeep. Mm. But I guess for some people, I mean, I get into this debate with people with regards to a digital yeah. piano versus an acoustic piano and obviously there's differences with the touch and the attack but you know some yeah, right. some audiophiles will tell you you can never quite truly replicate the sound of a, of a good acoustic piano either no that's right <clears throat> well i must tell you a amusing story my doctor said to me one day have you played the organ at notre dame or he pronounced it notre dame of course i thought uh, he was of course referring to the one on sussex drive in ottawa I thought he was talking about Notre Dame in Paris. But you've played that one too, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> because because my, I had an aunt in Paris, and uh, she knew the keeper of the treasure of Notre Dame, and she introduced me, and he said, would you like to try the organ? So he introduced me to the organist, and off we went. <laughs> now, you would probably know this better than I do, sort of keeping in touch with uh, with the local organists and about, but... Whatever became of the organ over there at Notre Dame, did it survive the fire? Yes, it did. It's, um, <coughs> of course, the cathedral building didn't, and, but the organ itself was okay. Yeah, I think it'll take them time to get... Uh, it's a big organ. It's got five keyboards. Most organs are two, you know, or three. But sometimes Dominion Charms in Ottawa has four. And I imagine sort of in those older cathedrals, you probably get a tracker organ. It's one of those ones where the more stops oh, yes. you pull out, you have to sort of stomp the keys with your hands just to get things going. Yes, well, when I was an organ student in Wales, and we had a tracker organ in the church, and the more stops you pulled out, the harder it was. 
to play the notes. But did it have an electric pump, or was there somebody working the bellows to go with it as well? Uh, no, it, it, it had both, actually. It started off with a pump, and then eventually they had it electric, electrically pumped. But, <clears throat> but they, they seem to have cured that. Now, a lot of uh, pipe organs don't have that pressure problem, you know, so technology has improved. Of course, of course it has. I'm I'm thinking now, you know, the fact that you've been playing in in church choirs and and leading congregations in music for the better part of maybe seventy years. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it does. Yes. Have you yes. have you have you noticed any sort of trends or changes? Maybe people want sort of more upbeat, cheery hymns, or maybe the style of the music has changed over over those decades. Um, no, I, th- I think people are really conservative. Some of them like the good old <coughs> hymns they grew up with, you know, and uh, <coughs> they don't like too much modern stuff, I find. It, I guess it depends sort of where you go and sort of what congregation you're dealing with. Yeah. I know Professor Mina Carlton, who was a medievalist, said he would go to Mass at these churches in Italy that are 1,500 years old. And, yeah. you know, they were led by a praise and worship rock band doing sort of heavy metal covers. Mm, yes, well, <clears throat> well, that to me is, is pretty awful. I mean, I don't like that kind of sound anyway. No, no, I, I probably would agree with you too. But, uh, it, I mean, it's interesting to kind of see how it how it waxes and wanes. But uh, to your point, it's it's sort of, you know, there is that, that foundation, that tradition that... Uh, seems to be sort of unshakable for, for a lot of the musical repertoire. Occasionally, I, I used to sing in the cathedral choir in southern England when I lived there, just not on a regular basis, but simply as a guest, you know, just to add a bit of beef to the tenor part. To enjoy that, and the organists were very conservative indeed, you know. <laughs> it, more, more, more so than, than today, or, I mean, it was just sort of a feature of those cathedrals? Yeah, they, they didn't like any any hint of sort of popular music at all, not in the church, and certainly with the hymns, hymns and things. Yeah, and I mean, especially if you're in the south of England, I've I've heard I've heard stories. I mean, about how much sort of English church music in particular was kind of exported across the world. I mean, I think of sort of the Welsh hymns at the beginning of the African Queen with Catherine Hepburn trying to. Get the get lead the choir and guide me, O oh, thou great Redeemer or, or great Jehovah, as it would have been back then. But I think you one mentioned it to me at one point that uh, you knew someone who was a cathedral organist at Khartoum. Yes, <clears throat> yes, I did. He, uh, I think he, I think he lives in Ottawa somewhere. Well, he did anyway. Is that right? It's 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 remarkable to think sort of the you know different countries you visited, the different work that you've, uh, you, you've managed to uh, accomplish through your music. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about, you, you, you briefly touched on it, uh, you, you did a trip to the, to the Soviet Union at one point. Uh, oh yes, <clears throat> that was when I was um, in university and uh, some friends of mine were going to Moscow, things had just opened up, Stalin died, and that allowed more people in, you know. So I spent uh, three weeks, I went to the Moscow Conservatory and attended quite a few concerts there, the Bolshoi 
for some magical reason, I was given a free pass to all these concerts. I can't, can't remember why, but <laughs> anyway, I went to the Bolshoi and saw Boris Kudunov, and, uh, and I certainly, I remember, I remember, you know, I remember very singing with people and so on, but it was very enjoyable. That's, that's, I mean, you must have been one of the few Westerners who was able to do that at the time. I mean, I imagine it was yeah. still a very closed-off society. Because I went by train, and it took um, I to get the boat to Belgium. And then I went by train across, uh, you know, France, East Germany, West Germany, Poland. And we had to change trains for Russia because the, the railway gauge was different. They kept. That was one way of keeping people out. Every time in Russia, every time we stopped at a station, there was a brass band and the reception committee greeting us. It was just absolutely wonderful. Because we were the first Westerners they'd ever seen, absolutely. You, you mentioned something really early on, sort of learning music during the, the war and being uh, exceptionally cautious and sort of living in that, that, that sense of fear. And then... I think that yeah. I think about sort of the time that we're living in right now. I mean, the last yeah. time I saw you was March first, two thousand and twenty, when we did our Saint David's Day Gamanfagani over at uh, Westminster Presbyterian, and I figured we would probably get together for lunch in a few days or a few weeks. And uh, here, here we are, some fifty-four weeks later. I mean, how have you been yeah. keeping up? I hope you've been doing all right. Yes, I've uh, I've been picking him for my church, and uh, I've got a rehearsal tomorrow with the soprano. And we're giving I've given several concerts to the local community center on the telephone. Really? How does that work? I'm not quite sure. There's a firm called Mercury, spelled with an I at the end, M-E-R-Q-C-U-R-I, and the Old Folks Community Center phones me, and I put my phone on the piano. And then they hook up another 20, 25 people on the same line. And I play a recital for 30 minutes. Yes, it's incredible. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, when I'm playing, they mute so that people can't talk. What sort of music, have, what sort of music have you been playing? Um, it's almost light classical stuff, you know, with some famous tunes and well-known songs. But they like the music to be short and sweet. So, so every one of my pieces is uh, oh, less than three minutes. And I, but they like Strauss waltzes, that kind of thing. And I've got another one booked next month, so that'll be number five. And and if correct me if I'm wrong, you've also been doing accompanying Sunday church service at Westminster online, have you not? Yes, but they, they, we do have a regular organist, and he does pretty well most of it. Oh, I'm, I see. But because I, I thought at one point you were you were doing a, a Sunday service on on the computer, or maybe just listening in while while he was performing. No, I've done uh, stuff on the computer for the Ottawa Welsh Society. Yeah, we did the St. David's Day thing with me on the Westminster Church organ and uh, accompanying various singers. So. Oh wow! I didn't realize that that still uh, took place this year. I'm sorry that I was I was out of the loop, but uh, I'm I'm glad there was some kind of a celebration at least. Yes, I should have sent you um, the link. But I, <laughs> it's I'm fine. Afraid. No, no, no. That's quite all right. But uh, how how did it go then, being online for the first time ever? Well, 
very <coughs> successful. I, I watched the whole thing, of course, and like saw myself, you know, and heard myself. <coughs> and they had excerpts from previous Welsh festivals I've played at in the United States. I've, I've played a lot of concerts in the U.S. of A. The biggest complaint that I had from musician friends that have been doing sort of online collaborations is that the latency just isn't good enough. In other words, when you press down on a key, I might hear it a half second later. And so it just becomes way too difficult to coordinate, you know, even a piano accompaniment, much less something like a choir. Has that been your experience? No, no, I'm not. I, all the ones I've watched have been bang on, you know. <clears throat> so, so when I play a note on the organ, that's what I hear right away. Well, that's that's good to hear. Then I mean, maybe the technology is yeah. finally improving, but I'm sure you yeah. you still lose something versus doing it yeah. in person. I think it depends on the technicians who are running the show. You know, they, some of them are more expert than others. Yeah, and that m- might be a part of it too. But then I think yeah. you know, there's probably a, a, an emotional component, if nothing else, that uh, that you miss yeah. out on because you don't get to do it in uh, in person. Well, I've certainly missed the regular things like the Kamsing Messiah, which I've done for years and years and years. Yeah, something like that with hundreds of people packed in singing all at once. I mean, that I don't not until COVID is sort of completely vanquished. I can't imagine people doing something like that in closed quarters. And I've also been playing at Amico, the retirement residence, and other places, and that's all gone, you see, so... I'm I'm hopeful that uh, life will go back to something that resembles normal. Yes, I think I think we all are. I think people are, people are getting very tired of uh, the, the, the lack of these activities. You know. Yeah, at least now I guess with the idea that we're all going to be vaccinated in short order, there's uh, there's some hope that uh, the end is is in sight, or at least we're sort of at the horizon of it. I've got a vaccination booked for the end of this month and follow up in July. Oh, good. Best of luck to you. I hope uh, I hope everything goes smoothly yeah. with that. It's nice to see that they're they're finally making appointments. It took me uh, it took me an hour and a half on the telephone. I had to wait on hold. Yes, I, I need a lot of patience when you're dealing with these people. I mean, I think that's true of bureaucrats no matter where you go, but uh, <laughs> what else can you do? Tell me a little bit about your work with the, with the various Welsh societies. I mean, I know that there's one here in Ontario, but I think you also are quite involved with the International Welsh Society, yes? Yes, yeah, most of those events were in the USA. You know, I played a lot of American cities, Washington, Portland, Buffalo, Chicago, all kinds of cities. I've done lots of festivals in the States. Is there any that stands out to you as being particularly memorable or that were especially fun for you? Um, not particularly. So uh, I think I enjoyed the West Coast. You know, Portland, Oregon was, was great. I've never, I've never been out to the Northwest. What, what was it like out in Portland? Yes, it's, it's a very nice city, and they have a direct uh, train link from the airport to the center of the city, which is very nice. Saves you a fortune in taxis. So, so do they pick a, a, a location for these events just based on the local Welsh populace, or, or is it just roving from year to year? Well, the next international one is here in Ottawa in September. 
I think it was supposed to be here last year, but then everything, I'm guessing, got pushed ahead because of the pandemic, and who knows if it's going to go ahead in September or not. We can only yes, hope. We'll have to wait and see, but it will be in Knox Presbyterian Church and uh, in the Lord Elgin Hotel. Those are the two spots. I, I imagine in, in, in sort of your lifetime, the correct me if I'm wrong on this, there's probably a lot less organists that at least here in Canada than there might have been when when you came in 1977 I'm just thinking there's probably fewer churches and a lot of them are probably going away from sort of more traditional types of hymn music do you think it's a dying art at all I, well these things come and go you know I think <clears throat> you're probably experiencing especially at the moment a decline but I think it'll probably pick up again well, I mean, when, one, one can only hope. I mean, I think of, you know, at least in pop music, you've got sort of Hammond uh, organ players. And, of course, you were gracious enough to help me proofread my, my master's thesis some uh, yes, about uh, hockey organ music. Can you believe that was a decade ago? <laughs> Tempest Fujit. It really is uh, unbelievable how uh, how quickly time sort of flies. But, yeah, uh but, but that's uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting that you've you managed to to keep up with sort of your Welsh roots in uh, in in playing with the yeah. the Ottawa Welsh Society. I mean, um, how how is your Welsh? Are you are you fluent in it or? No, I'm not. Uh, I've, <clears throat> my my family, my mother and my grandmother, my aunt, the uncles, they all spoke Welsh. I'm afraid I was a bit of a traitor, and I opted for French as a, as an option. <laughs> I mean, it ended up working out probably beautifully, given that you you moved to Canada. But I mean, it probably wasn't all that popular when you were were growing up, or was it? Well, it depended which valley you lived in in Wales. You know, the valleys in Wales go from north to south. The valley I was brought up in was not all that well speaking, but the valley next door was. So it's purely a geographical thing. I see. Somebody told me that in Cardiff. For example, there's not a lot of, of Welsh speakers. No, but North Wales certainly much more than South. I see, because maybe just the proximity to England or something like that. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's, it's, the language has really survived, and uh, people have made a lot of efforts to keep it survived. It's still flourishing, which is good. So, so when you're somebody that is, like yourself, such a, a, a prolific performer and and i guess i should say composer as well you've 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 composed quite a bit in your in your lifetime as well yeah, yes i have yes what what kind of music just for for the uninitiated uh, some piano music mostly songs i i entered the competition for the one of the american Welsh festivals but uh, i got second place not first so <laughs> you accept these things philosophically you know? of course of course but uh, do you find it more difficult, just given you know how much you've performed and and how much you've done in your in your career, mm. to sort of listen to other musicians or to to listen to 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 music in your own downtime? Yeah, I don't I don't listen to music much, to be quite honest. I've uh, <clears throat> I've got a keyboard in my apartment. I like to play that every day, and I go to Westminster Church uh, once or twice a week to play the piano there. Because my grand piano is there, I gave it to the church. So I still, I like to keep playing. My fingers, fortunately, are still 
fine. I don't have any arthritis. You know, nothing. Now, have you have you found that your tastes have sort of changed over the years? Is there anything that you used to really enjoy playing or or conducting, and now you just it doesn't doesn't tickle your fancy anymore? Uh, not much. No, I, I like um, you know if you give me a toss up between Bach and Handel, I prefer Handel. <laughs> It's certainly what some people would not agree with, but uh, I just like the way he writes and for piano and keyboard and so on. Called. Somebody once told me he was the first composer in history that had never fallen out of the repertoire. He sort of ever since Handel died, people kept playing, you know, his music for Royal Fireworks, his yeah, uh, Handel's right. Messiah. Whereas J.S. Bach, it was really more of a question of. Uh, Felix Mendelssohn kind of resurrecting him after the fact. Yes, and it's also a degree of difficulty to a Bach is very difficult to, to play and to sing. It, it's interesting because he sort of he sort of held up as the exemplary model of what Baroque music is sort of supposed to be, but in many respects he really is kind of the outlier, isn't he? Yes. <clears throat> One of my friends said that he prefers Offenbach to Bach. <laughs> quite amusing. It's a good pun, and I mean, Offenbach is probably a re worlds removed from uh, from anything Baroque. He was an operetta composer, wasn't he? Completely. Yes. Oh no, I, I I enjoy playing Handel. I like listening to him too. So that's my hmm. number one composer, if you like. Well, that's that's fantastic. So I'm I'm mindful of the time. I don't want to give you swimmer's ear over the phone. I'm very grateful that you, you did this um, with me. One last thing I sort of thought about asking you while I uh, have you on the line. I know a lot of friends that have uh, taken up musical instruments during uh, pandemic times. I mean, a lot of sort of spare time at home alone or in, in close company. And, you know, a lot of people who've been putting off learning a musical instrument are doing it now, maybe remotely with a teacher or maybe just self-taught from YouTube videos and books. I mean, with, with someone of your experience, do you have any advice for people like that as to how to sort of pursue and hone their musical craft? <coughs> um, not specifically. It's just um, <coughs> music that is, it requires an awful lot of effort, you know, to learn and... Uh, I think it, 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 you know, people get discouraged quite easily, and uh, but it just needs to do a little bit at a time. Rather than when I was a kid, of course, the piano lessons were an hour. For a six-year-old, that was too much. But um, I think it's. I think the important thing is to do something on a regular basis, even if it's a small amount. Are there ever those moments where you know you you feel like you have to practice or you have to have to sort of whip yourself into into doing the, the work, or are you someone who's just naturally very disciplined? Yes, no, I don't need to be pushed or pressed. Uh, you know, I've got my soprano friend coming tomorrow, and we're going to rehearse some music, most of which I've probably never seen, but that's fine. I'm a good sight reader. You know, it's a big help. Oh, that's great. I mean, yeah, that yeah. you don't have to worry about prepping or seeing things ahead of time. It just sort of no. take it straight off. Well... 
I I hope. I mean, I really am glad we got to to do this, even if it is remotely. I hope I haven't bored you to tears, Alan. But uh, not the slightest. <laughs> great pleasure to talk. It was it was a great pleasure for me too. And then hopefully, all things being equal, in a few months' time, we can we can do this in person, uh, and you know, get yes. maybe maybe lunch or in the pint and do things properly. That will be nice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alan. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person. You take care of yourself. Yes. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Alan. Bye. And just like that, another episode is in the can. Thank you so much to Alan Thomas for sitting down and chatting with me. You know, I really do miss our in-person hangouts. We used to grab lunch about once a month or so and keep in touch that way. And hopefully, once life goes back to normal, we can resume that tradition Something that didn't come out in the podcast that was always a very interesting uh, thing about Alan that he taught me in his experience as a teacher and as a musician is the idea that learning very seldom happens in very slow, steady increments. So you're not going to be 1% better at something today than you were yesterday and then 2% better the day after that and 3% better, etc., etc. It's not a slow and steady incline. Rather, you tend to plateau for a long amount of time and then hit this new epoch, hit this new level. And where people go awry learning a musical instrument or learning how to do a podcast like I've been doing is when they realize they're not improving at this steady pace and they just give up. They just give up because I'm obviously not getting any better. I've been working on this for a month and it's the same as it was a month ago. But, you know, every now and then you hit this aha moment where you realize things are a lot better than when you started. But you just have to kind of persevere through those lulls. And so that's been important for me. And I am about to hit a new plateau thanks to my new producer, Riley Evans. Everyone give a lot of love to Riley. I finally bit the bullet and hired a producer. And so the first episode I gave him was a telephone call going through my PC speakers into my microphone. So as you know, that is the most high fidelity way to capture phone audio. So if there are any issues with this podcast, they fall squarely on his shoulders. And if you don't understand my sarcasm, you are exactly my kind of people. And I hope you will tune in for the next episode of Who Cares If You Listen, also in stunning high fidelity audio. If You Listen is a podcast produced by me, Antonio Jambardino. The opening credits are performed by me and written by me. The closing credits are based on a menuet by Autorino Respighi and also played by me badly on my Techniques KN1400. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this podcast, that's nice.